and welcome to Podcast Maximus, Transformers review and analysis show that proves that criminals may be hot, but podcasters are hotter. And joining me today in a break from our usual tradition is a, a special guest we've had on before, who when I was talking to her earlier, and uh, I was saying I don't know much about cars, she told me she was married to her car. It's Mrs. Becca Carr. <laughs> It, look, it's for tax purposes, all right? And you, you still use your maiden name for professional engagements, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. If I go around telling people I'm married to a car, it just makes me sound weird. But if you say, no, I married my car because tax, they're like, oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, what, what taxes do you get a break on when you, when you marry a car? <laughs> um, marriage stuff? I don't know. Stuff. <laughs> he told me I would get a tax break, and I was like, you know what? You know, we're going to see each other every day. We pretty much go everywhere together anyway. Why not? Um, there you go. It's a whole new meaning to the term riding shotgun. <laughs> anyway, we are here. We are back uh, after our uh, last night episode, which seems to go down very well, to do our equivalent of Revenge of the Fallen. A more bloated and rambling, you could tell that already, uh, slightly <laughs> incoherent follow-up to the successful first one. Where but we... we're no racism. We're not no, going to well, touch the it's, racism. It's like, even yet. we have standards. <laughs> I might have a go at the Australians at some point. Oh, yeah, fair enough. That's allowed. <laughs> we are going back in time today. 11 years. Back in the days when we thought Gordon Brown and George W. Bush were the low points of British and American politics. Uh, <laughs> for in- ineffectual skill and talents. Do you remember those days, Becca? Those dim and distant happy days? I, I still... I distinctly remember sitting in my parents' living room, my dad looking at Sarah Palin and going, wow, US politics cannot get any lower. Yeah, and I remind him of this on a daily basis. Imagine if she'd made it to high office. I don't, I don't have to. She <laughs> did, just as a man called Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that happened. But, <laughs> but uh, 2007, by I the man... I didn't actually know what Transformers was in 2007, so... Uh, half my brain was just full of nothing, just sitting there waiting <laughs> so, for information. So there, there were no good films at the cinema, and you had no old Transformers fiction either. It was just you were you're, you were an empty vessel. Wait, wait, I was to be blissfully filled. ignorant. Yeah, I didn't know what a frenzy was. I didn't know why trucks and monkeys were compared. I didn't even know that these comparisons happened on a daily basis. So, uh, so, oh, so, you, so, so you were not a fan before, so like the Unicron trilogy had completely passed you by then? I, everything had. I was I was a Power Rangers kid, and then I was a Pokemon kid. Uh, I watched Cartoon Network, like, you know, Dexter's Laboratory. I watched Nickelodeon, like Keenan and Kel. But somehow, for 20 years of my life, I completely missed that Transformers was ever even a thing. I think I was just in that generational year where Transformers didn't touch me because I was either too young or too old or didn't exist at all, as in, you know, when the original came out. Um, and I just I just didn't notice it, you know, at all. When I watched the film with my parents for the first time, nothing seemed to jump out at me and say, I remember that from being a kid. Oh, but that's pretty much a complaint for fans, I'd <laughs> 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 They still do, True, true. <laughs> so, uh, so basically, you were the person Michael Bay made this film for, because I, I was listening to the, uh, the director's commentary, and he said, you yeah, know, he had to uh, make a film that wasn't just for 30 year old people who loved it when they were yeah. kids. Uh, so you, it, it was specifically for you. He had a photo of you on his wall. Uh, so, this is <laughs> yeah, Becca, I, I this still is. don't know how he got that, you know, pre Facebook days. There was no data leaks, you know. <laughs> every single decision he made on every one of those films, he was going, This is for Becca. This is. <laughs> 
Cogman was my pièce de résistance. You know, just mwah. <laughs> that's why he had to give up. He peaked there. He peaked at Cogman. Yep, I I could agree with that. <laughs> so, uh, did you go see it at the cinema then, or was this a, a, an after when it came out on uh, DVD, as it was in those yeah, days? Yeah, I I told I've told the story a lot of times on um, Twitter, but you know, just for everyone, anyone who's is not completely bored by it yet. Um, I just went to Swindon one day with my mum, and we were in HMV. Uh, remember when people used to buy DVDs on High Street? Crazy. Anyway, uh, we were in HMV, and at the time, one of my all-time favourite films was a 1995 film called The Rock, which was directed by Michael Bay. Um, it was the Sean Connery, Alcatraz one. Super cool. Very good soundtrack. And I remember just turning around and seeing like this display of this cool film with robots in it called Transformers from the director of, at the time, one of my favourite films. I just remember picking it up and saying to my mom, do you, do you fancy watching this tonight? You know, we need a film to sit down and watch. It's, it's Saturday. There's nothing much else to do on a Saturday. We don't follow, you know, sports team or anything. And she went, yeah, it looks all right. And it's got the guy in it from, we knew we'd seen Shia LaBeouf somewhere, but it didn't click until afterwards. We'd seen him in Constantine. Um, and we sat and watched it and we all thoroughly enjoyed it. But even then, I mean, this was early 2008. Um, and I didn't actually then get into Transformers proper until the summer of 2008. Uh, when I discovered the 1986 film by chance and only gave it a chance because I had seen the 2007 film. That must must be very confusing going into that. Yeah. Drawings. What's what's going on with? I imagine, I can't really remember a lot from my first time watching it because I watched it on a PSP UMD disc. So it was a very small screen and it wasn't really that cleaned up. And I think I probably reacted to it in the same way that my dad reacted to it when I made them watch it. I mean, when I sat down to watch it with them uh, about a month ago, where he just constantly throughout the film went, why is everyone dying? This is horrific. This was made for kids. He just he just blew up. And I probably was doing a lot of that and not really connecting much with what was going on. Um apart from Megatron and Starscream, and that's why I then went off and watched the series, and hey-ho, here I am now. But yeah, I, I have a peculiar relationship with the Bayverse movies, because certainly the last, the latter four, I can acknowledge that they're not brilliant as movies, but I still kind of have a soft spot for them, because without them, I wouldn't be here. So I have to give them some credit, and as a, a watcher of them, as, a, as the audience, I look at them from the non-Transformers perspective is just I'm a general audience member that they managed to pick up. Um, and there's a lot of stories coming up like that on Twitter now where younger fans came in via the films or via Transformers Animated or Transformers Prime, which only exists thanks to the films. Yeah, I, I just I have a soft spot for them. I can't help it. And the first one's good, damn it. And I'm going to prove why on this podcast. I, I, that was a thing... Because uh, this was really the first time in a long time I sat down to watch it properly for, for this mm. podcast. It's normally I'm tweeting my hilarious live tweets or yes. <laughs> uh, or uh, you know, playing with a toy or reading something. But so I, I think because almost before it came out, I mean, I've got a friend of mine who, uh, who jokes up with Michael Bay films. The reviews were already written before the films even come out. So he just says the same yes. thing about every single one of them. Uh, for a moment, it came out, fans were making certain complaints about the film that aren't really true about this one. I mean, I made mean, about the plot, not making any sense, the editing of the direction, all things that became more true as the series went on. It's almost as if their their complaints were willing the film they had in their heads into existence. Yes. So when I, when I, so when I went into it, I think, 
11 years of, oh, it's rubbish, it's rubbish, it's rubbish. Maybe the first one's okay, but yeah, it's still got a lot of rubbish in it. Ooh. And I was, it's genuinely really, really good. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's not, cool. it's not like, I mean, Revenge of the Fallen, I enjoy a lot of that, but maybe in a slightly ironic way or a, or a tongue in Yeah, way. Revenge of the Fallen is one of those films that you can enjoy, but you. Um, you kind of wear blinkers for a lot of it and just pretend that a lot of it never happened. You just skip over it. Yeah, it's a film that you can enjoy with caveats, whereas the first film is a film you can just genuinely enjoy. It's just, uh, it's like, uh, there's no irony, there's no, well, except for this bit and that bit. It, I think pretty much the whole thing, I don't want to you know, ruin my final thoughts on the film already, this early, <laughs> but it's, I think it's just about everything in this movie works. By the standards yeah. of the is nearly perfectly it hits every beat uh, people who complain about the direction not making any sense I don't know maybe it's because it's 11 years later and film direction's got even more frantic now I don't know it's like uh, Tomorrow Never Dies a Bond film and that came out everybody was going oh look at the way it's directed it's so fast and it doesn't make any sense and you watch it now and it's quite a perfectly normal pace film so maybe Bane was just a bit ahead of the curve here but I, I there's some I mean, beautiful be- uh, sorry there's some beautifully composed shots in this film as well. The cinematography's great. Uh, a lot of it, I mean, when Ironhide jumps in slow motion over a screaming woman at one point, that's an ama- it's ridiculously yeah. over the top, but it's an amazing shot. So there's a lot of that in this film. Yeah, and I think, to, to be fair to the people who are saying, you know, it's directed too fast, it's too confusing, when you look at what came before, when you look at the fight scenes in G1, let's look at Heavy Metal War, you know, that is gladiatorial combat megatron versus optimus fight it's actually an incredibly slow paced fight scene to the point where sometimes it because of the quality of the animation it's too slow it's too staged whereas michael bay's stuff particularly in this film it flows you know it's action consequence action consequence action consequence and there's no lag um and even beast wars which you know it had the superior animation it had the cgi animation it was still very stunted in the fluidity of its movements so it can be very jarring watching a g1 episode and then watching or watching a beast wars episode and then watching the bayformers straight afterwards it is a lot quicker but it's not detrimental in the first film you can follow the action you can follow what's going on very easily if you just pay attention you know if you are on your phone or you're fiddling around with the transformer in the background and you look down and you look back up yes you have skipped a lot of what's happened but that's kind of not the director's fault you should be paying attention to the film that's why they make films yeah it's also like we're recently with infinity war uh mm. when you have people going oh it won't make any sense to be haven't watch all 20 films and i was like well it's I'm going to guess most of the people who haven't been following it closely, they're not that invested in it. When they yeah, go see it, exactly. it's going to be how cool does stuff blow up? What yeah, are the lines They will go and see it because of an actor in it yeah. or, yeah, because how, of how the trailer. How sexy of a cast, whatever you're going into it. But yeah. <laughs> both cope with not really going, I don't understand who are these people. That's, 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 that's good. That's all I need. Yeah, I mean, when I watched Transformers for the first time, the, the chief that back in 2008, I wasn't watching it for the law. I wasn't watching it for this deep and interesting, you know, take on transforming robots from space. I was watching it because I came to it knowing that Michael Bay was an action director and I wanted a good action movie with robots. And it's exactly what he delivered. It's like the um, the complaints about Pacific Rim, the first one, just being a movie about monsters punching robots. It's like that's exactly what it advertised as. If you were expecting anything more, you were over expecting you know, it, 
Yeah, people seem to expect there to be lots of uh, mythology building, and uh, I've said people say, "Oh, maybe needs more mythology, needs more character building." And really, for, for blockbuster films, most of that gets done in the spin-off material. I mean, Star Wars, most of those characters have incredibly evolved backstories from books of the novels or the back of a toy card. Pretty much like Transformers, actually. It, I mean, it, Transformers starts with the mythology. You're in space. You've got Peter Cullen doing the epic voiceover. You're told. We are a race of robots. We have this thing called the AllSpark. It's lost. Megatron comes to Earth. Boom, you're done. That's your story. Jump on board. It, it's incredibly effective. And you see the first Transformer at six minutes in when Blackout attacks the base. So when people complain about this film and say there's not enough story, yeah, there is. There's a very simple, the bad guy wants the MacGuffin. We need to get to the MacGuffin before he does. You're told what the MacGuffin is and you're hinted at what it does. And that's it. You don't need to make it convoluted. And for an action film to actually have that level of storytelling is quite impressive. It's actually got three different plot strands as well. that are sort of in, mm. almost separate from each other doing their own thing. You've got sort of like the, uh, the Predator Star War film. Mm-hmm. Or uh, aliens, I suppose. Uh, I've seen Predators in the desert. A lot of a band from a helicopter. You can imagine Jesse Ventura being on a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quite easily. Uh, and you've got the, the Hackers plot, which is, yeah. I think is that's one of the weakest of the three. That's, that's the one I didn't remember. When I sat yeah. down to watch it again, I genuinely didn't remember that that was a part of the film. That That's giving you kind of the, the oh, what do you call it? Um, the, uh, I can't remember the word, the, the word, the backstory. They're giving you the yeah. how and the why. That, that feels... Uh, I mean, one thing I suppose about that is it, uh, that's a plot that's led by a female character who mm. there's no point where she's treated as if she's a, a sexy... I mean, obviously, she's a very attractive woman, the actress playing her, but it doesn't like dwell on it, that plot. She's just yeah, a there's a point where a general plot. speaks down to her because she's a woman, and it, the scene is played that the general is in the wrong, um, which was interesting to see again, you know, after 10 years of this, this series being accused of misogyny, which, yeah, it does have. Yeah. But that was a very interesting scene for me. I, I get the feeling maybe that was a Spielberg scene. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's some interesting subtext, the whole, possibly unintentional, the whole subplot in that, like, they, uh, it's all, <laughs> as you say, white, middle-aged men who are ignoring the young woman, but she's exactly right. Yeah. And also, uh, they call in all the best hackers, computer people, to try and solve this problem, including an Australian. But it turns out <laughs> the single best hacker lives just down the road, a taxi drive away, and they don't call him in, and he's a black guy. They don't guy, call him in. Which is, they're saying something. Yeah, that, that is a very veiled comment, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that whole plot is pretty much cut out of a comic adaptation, and it's it's not a very good comic adaptation, but mm. uh, you de- that makes you realise how it is really just fair to give the camera something to cut to when it's not sunset, whenever any, wherever the other characters are. <laughs> Uh, Land of the Eternal Sunset. <laughs> but yeah, and then you've got the third plot strand, which is like the main one, which is the Steven Spielberg-esque schoolboy, ordinary schoolboy who wants the girl, discovers that he is important and that his car is an alien, which, again, it's a straightforward good plot for an action movie. And uh, it's one that rests very much on the casting of the two leads as well, because... Uh, hmm. It could, as happens in some of the later films, a lot of that Tabo Michaela stuff could wind up feeling quite creepy or sinister yeah. when he's going, oh, I've, I've only got one seatbelt, let's come sit in my lap. Stuff. Yeah, uh, so yeah, it, it did come off as a bit stilted. If um, they, but if, 
if I think it works because they've got chemistry and because especially yeah. Mega Fox, yeah, you know, she plays it very oh hello, as if she she's eyeing him up right from the start. She's uh, like recently you have a lot of people idiots, I call them, going, Oh, oh well, you can't flirt with anyone anymore, as if they don't realise that to be flirting it has to be between two people rather than just one person. Yeah, it person has to be reciprocal. Yeah. There's a sense of, uh, almost immediately, of uh, banter, I suppose, uh, or uh, yeah. an interest. Yeah, they have, they have it's, chemistry. It's not just him trying to win her over. Yeah, I thought the scene where she was saying to him, oh, do you go to my school? Have I ever seen you before? And like she was genuinely trying to figure out who he was. And I found that scene to be really sweet. I thought, oh, I, I actually began to care about them i don't think i actually have ever michaela i've always cared about because i've always maintained she's a more interesting character than spike um or sam or whatever his name's supposed to be (laughs) (laughs) let sam be spike um because she has like you know the dad in prison and she's trying to hold his business together at the garage and that's always been more interesting than just middle class boy has car um but watching this film again, I kind of I did relate to Sam as well with like the social awkwardness, trying to be cool, but he's just such a dork. Um, and I think Shia LaBeouf gets an unfair rap because he he plays that role very well. Yeah, I think I think that's why a bit uh, with a car when Bumblebee's broken down and she's leaning over the car and he's going, whoa, uh, that works much better than any of the similar scenes in sequels because I'm not sure. I think they're supposed to be sixteen, but I'm not an expert on American school grades and unfortunately this one there's no conversation about such rape to make it clear how old they are but I, 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 <laughs> no I, I, one has a laminated card in their wallet to tell us if this is okay <laughs> so I, I think they're supposed to be 16 and i can relate to being 16 and somebody kicking your legs out from under you when you turn it into a complete board quite, quite easily and i think uh many people uh can maybe have that experience and i think he handles it Better than probably most of us did when we were that age. Even though he's, oh my god, this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen, he doesn't do anything too creepy or inappropriate. And when he does the cheesy, you're more of a meaty eye uh, <laughs> thing, and she walks off, he, he doesn't go, well, I don't understand why she's not having sex with me after I said that, that funny line. I'm entitled. He just thinks he's Yeah, he, he reanalyzes. And when the danger begins, you know, he, he knocks her off her scooter and he is trying to. Um, He's trying to protect her in his own way. I, I find it very good that at no point he was like, oh, don't worry, you should stay behind because you're a lady and ladies don't get involved in action. You know, he actively says to her, come on, get in the car, come on this adventure with me. And I found that quite sweet. You know, yeah, he wanted to get off with her. That was his ultimate goal. He's a teenager, she's a teenager, whatever. But looking at it from the lens that this film is already 10 years, 11 years old, and society, societal attitudes have changed even in that short span of time. It was refreshing to actually watch something from the early thousands that wasn't just so cringy, girl power, yeah, but was just, hey, you're a cool person, I want to go on an adventure with you, let's go. It was good, it was well handled. It felt to me actually a lot like uh, Big Trouble in Little China, where the, the central gag of that film is that Kurt Russell thinks he's the lead character, but he's really the sidekick. To, to the Asian guy, and he's a funny one. He's a funny comedy sidekick, and that's really the sheer uh, Sam, whatever his name is, guy, uh, <laughs> that guy, the male one. Uh, that's yeah. almost what the dynamic is, because uh, unlike him, you know, he's forced into this situation. He's got no choice because everybody's out to get him. 
she mm. could just walk away at any point. She chooses to get involved, and yeah. she does most of her the actual brave stuff in the film. Uh, yeah. By you know, she's the one hot rodding that truck to drag Bumby about to shoot things. Uh, Sam just gets a cube for sitting in his hands and says, "You run away whilst we shoot at the bad guys to, to save you." <laughs> and it's, it's the fre- I think it's still refreshing for, for an action film, and she's a much, much. I mean, I was going to say much better character than she's given credit for, but she's been given a lot more. Like maybe because the female leads who replaced her got increasingly worse. I don't know, but people seem to be a lot more supportive of Megan Fox. Than they yeah. used to be. There are whole YouTube videos talking about how great she is. In, I would say both the films, actually. I know uh, people talk about how uh, they don't think she's got much, much agency in the second one, uh, if, if that's the right word. I think the, the, the second one is just badly written for yeah. everyone, to be honest, um, because of the writer's strike. It was it was such a hodgepodge of ideas. Basically, that's the rest of the franchise, hodgepodge of ideas. Dark of the Moon is probably the most coherent out of the films that come next, but none of them ever really reached the characterization and the straightforward narrative of the first film. It's, yes, it's uh, it's on a very... Even with these three plots, it feels pretty linear, which I think is impressive. Yes. And it's, uh, I think I said on the Last Night podcast, yeah, this film is only 10 minutes shorter than the Last Night is. Yeah. And I would bet a lot of that 10 minutes is more credits. Because um, <laughs> yeah. The Last Night has three times as many editors as this film does. So if it's got three times as many yeah. editors, imagine how many more it has of everybody else who who worked on the film. So that was something else I checked. Well, the editing of this one is so much better than the last one. I checked if any of the names were the same. It's not it's a complete, completely different editing team. And there's twice as many of them. And it's, they don't yeah, do and twice as job. many locations and, yeah, and crews and... God, that last night was a mess. <laughs> I like it, but it was a mess. But, uh, I mean, for, for me, going into this one, uh, in a different position to yourself, uh, because I was a, oh, yeah. a pre-existing fan, a very old, very old fan, <laughs> and I had, I think Armageddon was the only Michael Bay film I'd seen. Uh, okay. I, I, everybody tells me to see Rock, because everybody says, oh, it's Sean Connery's just playing James Bond in it. It's an old James Bond teamed up with Nicolas Cage. And yeah, basically. What <laughs> a film! Uh, so I, sh- I should watch one day. Yeah, and uh, Ed Harris is a brilliant villain. I, I just got to say that he's fantastic. I think I think people forget how actually respected Bay was as because mm. I mean, uh, go to example, you know, Hot Fuzz, same year as Transformers. Mm. One of the central jokes in that film is Bad Boys Two as one of the greatest action films ever made, and it's it's a joke, but it's a joke that. It's a knows its show. audience. It's uh, mm. knows that people watching that film will agree with a sentiment for Bad Boys Two, and it's Bad Boys Two as well. It's not the first one; it's the second Bad it's Boys. Second, yeah. Uh, so he had done a lot of very well, and Pearl Harbor, unfortunately. But yes. Maybe they should have let him do a film with a lot of Asian people in it. Just a thought. No, nah. <laughs> he's not a perfect <laughs> director. That's what, that's what we're saying. <laughs> He knows how to do action. Just don't let him touch social commentary or history or context. <laughs> so, so, but so I sort of assumed because everybody was going to be awful. It'd be awful when you hear all these things. And the first time I saw the designs, I was like, "Oh wait," because the design for the robots don't look good in photos no. uh, or as we, the comics 
um, discovered they don't look very good when you draw them either. These are really need thousands of moving bits of metal done by the most expensive yeah. computer in the world to, to really yeah, work. These, and it, in motion, these are the signs that even Alex Milne is like, no, there are too many lines. Just no. <laughs> uh, so I wasn't that enthusiastic about going in. I was like, thought the, the whole Peter Cullen debates for people, well, it should be Peter Cullen. I was like, but they're talking about getting Tom Hanks to do it. Why wouldn't you want Tom Hanks to be Optimus Prime? That'd be, that'd be quite good. And then, of course, when the film starts, you go, oh, oh, oh yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good, Peter. That's good. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I was expected to be terrible. Of course, it's a toy-based film as well. They're, they're never good. Uh, like, uh, say, the 1986 Transformers film. <laughs> they're never good. So I was expected it to be pretty, pretty terrible. It came out late later in this country than America. So the first time I saw it was a... I can't remember if it, I watched the whole film or just a bit of it. I think I just watched a bit of it the month before it came out on a dodgy pirate copy my brother got. Yes, I am a criminal as well. I'm, I am hot. Uh, Arrest I'm, this man! Simmons is all over me and my training bar. But that's an odd line. <laughs> Very odd line, but we'll keep it. <laughs> uh, and I think I sort of saw a up to the bits with, with Bumblebee being broken down. I thought, oh, actually, yeah, this is okay. And then when it came out in the cinema and I went to see it, then I was like, oh, oh, bloody hell, this is actually really, really good. And I came out of it liking it with, uh, again, without having any expectations of Bay or most of the cast. Uh, it turns out I'd seen Sheila Booth in an episode of The X-Files. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, a, I think, most two most famous people in the cast for me were Glenn Morshower, right of the start. Yep. It turns out to be immortal because I, I love actors like that. Uh, who are sort of he's in everything, Glenmore Shower. Yeah, and he's team. always the grumpy military person. Always. And the fact that <laughs> yeah, at the same time he's in Twenty Four. In Twenty Four, he's in like one episode of the first season or something like that. He's just a guy. Mm. And then he, every season he gets more and more to do until he's like going around shooting people with Jack Bauer back to back. It's always great to get an actor suddenly get that role that who's worked for so hard for so long suddenly get that role that makes them have a character named after them in three Transformers films. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think the other one was uh, W. Morgan Shepard. Well, I love W. Morgan Shepard. He's always great when he turns up. With his sort well, of, remind me who he was playing. Oh, he's uh, Archibald Witwicky. Ah, uh, of course. Who is... Uh, oh, God, he's another one who's been in everything. In uh, Star Trek VI, he's the Klingon in charge of a penal colony. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, I can place him now. Yeah. And, uh, okay. But I've just... Load so much of he's the dad of Mark Shepard, uh, who's probably best known now for being in the never dying supernatural. But yes. uh, when Mark Shepard was in Doctor Who, in that one in America, his dad played the old version of him. Uh, which mm. that's a pr- amazing trivia fact, <laughs> yeah. No, I you know, I'd never put two and two together. <laughs> Good uh, job, it, Becca. <laughs> it, this is sort of really, he's got some. Like, He's like a really weird way of talking that makes him sound very... That sounds nothing like that. (laughs) (laughs) No sacrifice, no victory. (laughs) I love it. So those are the closest things. uh, I think the only... Even John Voight, I think the only film I'd ever seen John Voight in was Anaconda, which... uh, (laughs) But there are parts of Transformers where I'm pretty sure John Voight is high on cocaine. And Anaconda is a film that would have got him onto cocaine. Yeah. No, definitely, I agree. <laughs> there was a bit where they're talking about the Nokia phone, and he's uh, talking about Simmons. He goes, oh, I think he's a bit... And he starts doing a little weird dance with his hand. 
to signify mental illness. And that's how to give us definitely a man who was enjoyed the complimentary lunch a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, and his presence also helped to give the films a very national treasure vibe. You know, it, it you know, we're we're gonna look at history and something is different with history because of secret society or aliens or whatever so whenever i see like when i watched this again and saw john Voight, i was like oh right yeah okay <laughs> you know, that, that was the thing that, uh, that bugged me about this in relation to the last nights that i would forgotten but in, this film has a secret society i think it's the first seven or something it's called it's sector seven yeah oh, like the people who found it sector seven oh uh, yeah yeah, first. I can't remember what the exact term was. I was oh. like, oh, so there's already a, a secret society behind all this. For, yeah. For what was that? Oh, no, it was w- Williams oh. all along, and there are loads of them. Not just <laughs> get your mythology right, film. <laughs> Even though we just said the mythology doesn't matter, get some of it right, some of it. Yeah. By the last night, it, the whole universe is in flux, and it doesn't matter who says what. <laughs> that's that's why Barricade comes back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, speaking of which, actually, we, we've not really spoken about the, uh, the Transformers very much. We're always feeding into a myth that they're, they're relevant to the film. So what, what did you think of uh, the robots in disguise? Uh, well, for a ex- uh, for start, they they actually keep up the in-disguise shtick longer than the G1 cartoon manages, which is about 30 seconds. Um, when I first watched it, I loved Bumblebee and I loved Ironhide. Uh, Ironhide especially, he was my favourite, firmly. Um throughout the the franchise i really liked the designs and i i can clearly remember that the first time uh optimus prime transforms and you see that transformation up close you see the parts folding away i remember my dad saying wow that was incredible and i wish i'd seen that on a big screen because it is fantastic um and when i sat down to watch this again i thought you know CGI, it's 10 years old now. We all know what the Star Wars prequels look like now. Jeez, this is going to be bad. It looks like it was made yesterday. The effects are incredible. The the Transformers themselves are seamless in every scene, Um, especially when Frenzy is making his way through Air Force One and sort of interacting with the environment there. There's no point where you think, ah, that thing isn't actually there. It's, you know, it's photoshopped in. Um... And, you know, the Transformers themselves, they do have personality. A lot of people say they're not well established. They just sort of come and go. Um, But I noticed, especially in the the arrival to Earth scene, which for me is probably the the best scene because, oh, that music, that music. Um, When they arrive, Jazz arrives at the Porsche, um, the distributor, and you, you see him climb down from the roof and it's very dainty. He's trying not to break things. You know, he's trying to be kind of giant robot on this world where everything's so much smaller. Um, you see, I think it's Ironhide that lands in the swimming pool. Um, yes, yeah. yeah, and you see him hiding behind the trees from the parents of this little girl and trying not to be seen. You see Optimus Prime kind of, you know, scanning the environment. Oh, my God, this place is so different from what I'm used to. Then he gets the alt mode. And then they show up and introduce themselves. And they show up and introduce themselves pretty much how the Transformers do in the G1 Marvel comic and how they do in the G1 TV show and how they do pretty much in every TV show. Hi, my name is Blur and my personality is Blur and we are here to do battle with Decepticons. Um, also, you want to have sex. 
And yeah, that line did make me cringe because I remembered it just before he said it. I was like, oh. But again... Patient doctor confidentiality, Ratchet. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I can, even in universe, I can... I can't let it go because at the end of the day they're aliens and I like it when aliens actually act like aliens you know Ratchet might have thought that that was a perfectly acceptable thing to say because let's face it Optimus Prime says the line before we learnt your language from the world wide web and we all know how weird humans yeah, no, are no wonder they're all made <laughs> come on yeah no wonder that they think humanity is like a trash fire because if you just looked at us from the internet we are a trash fire <laughs> um the decepticons I, I try to focus on them more because there's a lot of discussion about the autobots whenever movie discussion comes up um and you have the decepticons are more mission oriented and you don't really get a lot of a feel for them uh barricade is very um he talks in staccato, you know, he, he phrases his sentences a lot like G1 Dirge does, like each word is individual. Um, and he's obviously just parroting information. Like when he's asking Sam, are you ladies man 217? It's quite clear that he doesn't quite understand what he's asking. Um, Frenzy. I love that they just gave him this kind of electronic chitter chatter because it gives him a lot of personality, you know, when he's hacking into the system and getting all excited. And then when he gets uh, thrown out at the last minute, he just bangs his head against the computer. It made me laugh because I can relate. I work with computers most of the day. Um, the character that has the least characterization is Megatron because we're just told bad guy who's bad because bad. And yeah, that could have been done better, but it's an action movie. He's the bad guy. He doesn't really need more than bad because bad um and i think i think his design i like the bayformer's design my favorite design is the last night because he's more streamlined a lot of them are more streamlined but he is quite scary you know if i was a human and this this pile of knives was running at me with like the sharp teeth and everything i would find that genuinely frightening so i think they could have did a good job i mean that's me now and i think because they were my first introduction to transformers they've never felt weird to me because they were the first ones i ever saw um but how about you i mean what did you think as as a fan coming to this having grown up or being familiar with transformers for so long well like yourself i thought the cgi uh was brilliantly done uh and so uh, still stands up i think cgi has maybe uh plateaued a bit over the last 10 yeah. years it's not that's the reason it doesn't look dated is that it's not really advanced that much. I think one of one of the reasons the CGI the last night. And to be honest, I thought the end of Black Panther as well. I was I wasn't found that less convincing CGI than in a slightly older mm-hmm. film like this, is that they were just trying to do too much, more than they could easily do well within the time with the budget they had, so it ends up looking a little bit more rubbery. Uh yeah. a bit more so, I mean there's some shots uh, in Avengers Infinity War. Evolving uh, the Hulkbuster armor near the end, uh, that, right. uh, where it's a person is in that armor and you can see them, and it's not remotely convincing. It looks like he's been superimposed on afterwards. You know, and it's still a very yeah. good film, uh, as is Black Panther. But there is more. I think the CGI they, they, they can't quite do that level to the same standard. The simpler uh, people keep saying, "Oh, there should be more robots, more robots," but. I think what this film very cleverly does, and it's a similar trick to the first Jurassic Park, and 
uh, many of those great uh, sort of effects films is that, is that it holds off other robots to periodic bits of sort of one one big set piece every 20 minutes or so and it makes that set piece count if it was just two hours Optimus Prime standing there going oh, I'm Optimus Prime oh I'll have a cup of tea how are you Ironhide I'm very good I'm, I'm not dead that's nice <laughs> let's hope you never die Ironhide not like Jazz no that would be awful that, that, would, that would have the same effect but when Optimus Prime turns up it's a big dramatic transformation and a booming voice and with holograms or a helicopter turned into a robot and destroying Glen Morshower. Not very successfully. <laughs> Not very successfully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people say, you know, it, you need human characters in a film like this to appeal to the general public. It's going to be the general public making most of your money. So you need to have a good blend of the cool robots for the fans and for the people who want to see cool robots and the humans for the people who turned up because they like Shia LaBeouf or they like Megan Fox or they like Glenn Marshauer. Um, he has fans. Um, and I think this film really does achieve that. And like you say, it makes them set pieces, so it makes them really dramatic and cool. Yeah, it's, uh, they're all slightly different as well. Uh, obviously, the helicopter attack is the first one, and I think the next one is uh, a comedy bit with Frenzy. Yeah. I love when he uh, gets past those security guards by hiding his face behind his hands. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> that is so frenzy. I love it. <laughs> I mean, that's a point where it's sort of a, a very silly, slightly juvenile level. Um, not that's not meant in a drugsy sense uh, level of humour in the film. But I should have warned people that a sequence of a man, a robot pissing on a man, was coming up. <laughs> I should have surprised anyone. <laughs> Again, you can justify it because Bumblebee earlier in the film sees Sam's dog peeing on Ironhide, equates that it's some kind of possessive, dismissive thing, and just repeats what he sees. So narratively, it does actually make sense uh, in a if you really make it, stupid way. If you want to make it grimdark, you know, he's putting highly flammable, toxic fuel on yeah. the Simmons. You know, he's probably... Right after he finished that phone call in the last night, he probably dropped down dead for the effects of Bumblebee's <laughs> leakage ten years earlier. Much to the chagrin of his robot husband, who just wanted to play some volleyball. And, uh, the characters, uh, I think the Autobots are all, for a film of this sort, they're all perfectly well-defined. Uh, I mean, compared to the X-Men films up to that point, they're all at least as well-defined as most of the X-Men are in their films. Because there's a lot of yeah. them, but they all get their one personality trait. Uh, they get yep. to have some fun with it. Uh, this is the only film that Optimus Prime gets to be funny, which I think is a bit of a shame. He gets to, you know, he gets to go, my dad. Yeah. Uh, when, he, uh, when he's going to Ironhide, about to shoot the dog, and he just goes to Ironhide, what is wrong with you? <laughs> That's a great little moment. Where did all my competent Autobots go? Oh, yeah, they're dead. Uh, never mind. Well, I suppose <laughs> the most short change one is maybe Ratchet, because all he gets is Furbone's gag, and he, uh, yeah. Even Jazz gets to be a, a black stereotype. Which, but it's good Jazz died before he could come out with any more What's Up Bitches moments. Yeah, just, uh, Jazz was a bit cringy, which is a shame because I think he has one of the coolest designs out of all of them. And I love the Human Alliance toy that he got, but it's like Jazz. Just... Uh, yeah, I remember the, uh, the actor, uh, I can't remember his name, I can't remember off the top of my head, but you said it said in the time how psyched he was to be replacing uh, Scatman Crothers and how we imagine that meant to him to be filling the role uh, but to be played by such an iconic actor. And it's like, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, but... <laughs> so he does get that amazingly uh, rubbish attempt at a one-liner by Megatron. Yeah, I want two! <laughs> Go on, we'll and then he looks here. around Give like, air, guys, air? <laughs> but, uh, but Decepticons, I actually find really interesting because it's something that the sequels, again, don't do. But uh, the Autobots, they come, they want to... Uh, Maybe not assimilate, but they want to explore the Earth culture. They want to, uh, they make the effort to be converse with us on our level, mm. as it were. But the Decepticons, I think the, the only sequence uh, where they're speaking about themselves, where they speak English, is between Megatron and Starscream by the bridge. And maybe that's been translated for us at that point. Uh, the rest of it, it's in their own very inhuman language. Which, with their more androgynous protoform designs, it doesn't feel like they're necessarily men or women characters, or even particularly human-like in their real personas. It's like the personalities they, the Autobots have adopted is as much of a disguise as their vehicle modes is. And yeah. all, none of that gets carried on between the following films, unfortunately, because that's a really uh, interesting idea. And the way you could have introduced more female Transformers quite easily because they could have just adopted a female persona. Hey, they had RC, kind of, in <laughs> Revenge of the Fallen, we all, maybe. We all about, well, she counts as three female characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I actually really like about, and I think, you know, Starscream gets some nice, uh, on a recent podcast, uh, myself and uh, Marion had a bit of a debate about whether Starscream actually has any personality in this film or not, but I, uh, I think he does. I think he's uh, sadly he he seems to have a slightly different personality in each of the three films as they slowly make him more and more Chris Latter. Yes, uh, but in this one he's a little bit sneaky, but he's also a bit of a bruiser, and he gets uh, my favourite of the action scenes as well, where he's ripping apart the other F twenty twos, dancing with yep. them in the air. Basically, I think that's an amazing shot. Um, so he gets a bit of Megatron. It doesn't, and uh, I don't. I still don't get why Hugo Weaving, because none of the other Transformers. I mean, some of we all know Peter Cullen is in the fan, fan community. We do like voice actors. Because obviously, yeah, Peter Cullen played Car, the evil version of Kiss in Knight Rider. We all know him from that. He's he's iconic yeah, for of course. <laughs> that's that is a fantastic episode to watch just because he, he just sounds Optimus Prime he's just evil Optimus Prime trying to kill David Hasselhoff for 45 minutes <laughs> uh, but yeah none of them are household names of the way Hugo Weaving is so I'm not sure why for just one character thought let's get somebody really famous it's not even as if he gets billing it's not like and Hugo Weaving as, as Megatron he's his name is buried right at the end of the cast list with all the other voice actors. So Yeah, and I don't really remember it being in the trailers even so much. Um, I suppose IMDb was still a thing. Hugo Weaving was incredibly household name at the time because of The Matrix and its sequels. Maybe they just really liked his voice. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, not bad, but they don't really... I mean, I think his yeah, best film is Dark anything, of the Moon. Really? Uh, um, where, where he's just the press in the third one. I keep losing. What's going on? I'm going to live in Africa with the elephants. No one bother me. You do what you like, uh, Spark. I don't give a fuck anymore. (laughs) I've given up. (laughs) Yeah, so that that, that minicast scene is a bit uh, strange. Really, Megatron's a film's over McGuffey more more than a villain. It's like the all Spark. Which they could have called the Matrix because of maybe that's why we got Hugo even here. They're like, we've had to change, we had to come up with a new name 
for the MacGuffin in Transformers because of your film. So you owe us something, Weaving. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's a literally phoned-in performance, which is worth something. Yeah. Bob and Bay could have phoned up anybody and got them to speak that line. The lines into phone. Maybe they were phoning Frank Welker, but Frank Welker lived next door to Hugo Weaving at the time, and they just got the wrong telephone number. And then at the end, they were like, they were too embarrassed. So just like, yeah, and Hugo Weaving is in this film. We totally paid him to do. It's since we sort of get on the commentary, but uh, Michael Bang uh, doesn't sound that much a fan of Frank Welker's Megatron. <laughs> He's going, yeah, well, people say we should get Frank Welker as well. The studio really wanted that and Hasbro did. But he sounded a bit too comic book for me. Uh, and I think he might like Hugo Weaving's nuanced, sophisticated is... performance. Yeah, which is a shame, because when you then listen to Frank Welker voicing Megatron in Transformers Prime, he sounds more like movie Megatron than G1 Megatron. <laughs> like, so, damn it, Bay. <laughs> so, like, very with you. Imagine being a big summer blockbuster that uh, recast Hugo Weaving because he didn't want to do it anymore. I'm sure that was something <laughs> that would never happen again anywhere. Never. Never. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not a spoiler. We haven't said which film that's a reference to, Mel. Because we're watching yep. every film that might have Hugo Weavey pop up in it at some point now. I was thinking, well, maybe this is the one they mentioned on our <laughs> podcast at one time. That was so memorable that it sat in my mind this whole time. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, generally the Transformers are a big success here. And uh, all the action scenes work, the character beats work, the big damn hero moments all work. Whether uh and uh, uh, the intimidation moments. I mean, it's amazing how well-remembered Barricade is from this film, considering yeah. uh, you know, he's not even the first action scene. I see why people remember the helicopter guy, because that's like the first big moment. But it's mm-hmm. like the, the first, he's a fourth or fifth when he's doing the ladies' man thing, so it's amazing. People will go, oh, the cop guy, yeah, that was, that was cool. I hope he comes back, which they got that wish at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he got the he got a movie masterpiece figure before a character like Ironhide, who was in three let films it, as a main character. Let, let it go, back Weird. <laughs> no, I will not let it go. He, he has that nice sort of Terminator Two vibe to him. Uh, which mm. got Terminator, of course, always had a big influence on uh, Transformers. So, the second <laughs> film in particular, yeah. Oh, yeah um, the, the pictures of Cybertron <laughs> and all that uh, as well. I actually was wondering this time, because like, I saw Terminator at the cinema last weekend. And here's, oh. here's a weird fact for your fans. Uh, what The biggest laugh in the audience uh, for Terminator wasn't, I'll be back. It was the, uh, the sex phone joke. Which is, <laughs> I'm sure we all remember that, that classic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, a big, <laughs> raucous laugh. Uh, but I was... That's totally total side there. But uh, I was wondering if uh, the Griffith Observatory being in this was a little nod at the first Terminator, because that's where Arnie lands. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. There, if that was a little tip of a hat there, or just a random unsequenter I invented in my head. It's, it's hard to be sure these days. <laughs> I suppose there's only so many observatories he could have, you know. <laughs> but, uh, oh, in fact, uh, they got to use uh, Griff- Griffith Observatory because of Leonard Nimoy. Who is, mm. uh, I think, Michael Bay's uncle in law or something like that? Or, okay. Or, I suppose that would be uncle, wouldn't it? I think, I think he's married to his, uh, to his aunt. Uh, that would make him an uncle, yes. yes uh, I don't like know that. much, but I know basic genealogy. So that, that was down to Leonard Nimoy. So they, they could have had Leonard Nimoy play Megatron in this. <laughs> 
Yeah, because he's never played a bad guy in the Transformers franchise twice. Uh, completely, uh, completely mind blowing. But uh, I suppose what we what we've not touched on as well is uh, 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 the old soldiers. Uh, mm. So, what, what did you think of the uh, the uh, Predator, uh, Predator, Terminator, <laughs> Alien? It's all. Uh, what did you, What did you think of the soldier stuff? Watching it again was weird because in my head, the soldiers I had were the soldiers as they came back in AOE, uh, not AOE, uh, the last night. Um, So watching it again, seeing Lennox and his team, for me, they actually gave the film its emotional heart. Um, They were trying to do that with Spike and Sam even, and Bumblebee (laughs) being his first car and Megan being his interest and blah, 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 blah. But the characters I felt for the most and I wanted to survive were the soldiers because you get to see him at the beginning. He's very kind to the little boy who's running around with their unit. You know, he rings home. He wants to see his baby girl. He wants to see his wife again. His unit all have an amazing line of pat with each other. Um, Really good back and forth. And then they're in the middle of this horrible thing. What's going on? And they've got to survive and get across the desert. And I was a lot more emotionally engaged with that than I was with Sam and Michaela. Um, to the point where, you know, when they, they, they do the cool thing where it says, bring the rain, and you get this epic airstrike against Scorponok. Um, I was like going, woohoo, in my head, because it was, it was cool, and I wanted them to, to get home and be okay. And then at the end, you know, you see Lennox reunited with his family, which is kind of what he wanted from the beginning. So he gets a complete character arc, which is unusual for a film like this. And it's just really nice, and I was I was rooting for them. Well, um, I guess I guess she divorced him by the next one now because they're never mentioned again. Yeah, they're never mentioned again. No, and his kid would be like ten now. So <laughs> uh, that, that's uh, a, that's yeah. your lead for the next one, Lennox Junior. Lennox, yeah. Oh God, no. <laughs> At, uh, yeah, I mean, because they're very, 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 again very sketchily drawn characters. Uh, I think they're all that's. Where the involvement of the military, and again, you hear people moaning about the oh, the US military, they're just doing propaganda about what all these films are. And then there was a piece recently where somebody like, like listed all the films that had helped the American military and the requests they made in those films before they got the help. And people go, Oh, that's terrible how they're, they're making people, they won't give you any help unless you're nice about them. And I'm like, Well, why would they rent you out their stuff if you're just going to feel what a bunch of terrible people they are or whatever uh yeah it's it's, it's they don't have to give it to films it's fair enough they would have some sort of uh constraints on there but i, I think uh, uh famously independence day that's always been my favorite uh they, they're going to do it top gun style with all the real u.s air force jets they yeah. put spaceships in afterwards and all that but uh they were for they were turned down uh for help or uh for the uh assistance because they wouldn't remove uh Area 51 from the script. They're like, okay. you, can't, you can't tell people. You can't put that in there. That'll give the game away. We, take you can't tell f- people Area 51 exists. <laughs> they have no idea. So Independence Day only has two shots of a real aircraft in the whole film. The rest of it is all, uh, all trickery. That's, that's why Independence Day, fair, in fact. Michael Bay knows how to make a military action shot look cool. It's the thing he's good at. Yeah, we, we joke about the sunsets and the lens flare and all of that, but I'm a pacifist and I'm kind of anti-military, but 
the shots look damn cool. He knows how to use the hardware, how to instruct the extras being troops. I don't know if there are any, were there any real troops in the film? Uh, I know that there was they, hardware. But... Uh, the, the troops would do the, uh, the air drop uh, of the ATAC, yeah. I think it's called, isn't it? Uh, or is that the walker from Star Wars? I'm not really sure. It's something, something like that. <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, but I mean, he, those he knows are real troops. Where Michael Bay said, "What would you say if you were bombing a giant, not 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 Middle Eastern children this time, but a giant evil robot? What what would you say <laughs> in that <Yeah>. situation?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I am not a fan of the military by any means. But I mean, this is a film about giant robots invading us from space. The military had to get involved somehow, and I would rather them look like they know what they were doing. The knots, you know, then it being a Hollywood film where it's clear the director has no idea what happens on a military base. Um, I liked it when they got to the first military base and you see that they've set up like some kiddie play pools and called them like the Oasis or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it just it feels genuine. So if you're going to do it, at least make it feel right. Yeah, I think uh, it gets the authentic uh, relationships between the characters, a sort of uh, that banter, that sort of mild insult <laughs> when you're in that sort of situation. And the, uh, I, I mean, immediately, I thought I know every military de- detail in this film could be entirely wrong. <laughs> I know Michael Bay had help from NASA on Armageddon, and there's no, nothing in that film about space is remotely accurate. <laughs> so it might yeah. be the same here with the army, but it look it looks authentic. It has very similitude, uh, which buys into the, adds a bit of reality to all the battle scenes and the characters. And it, it, it's not just unreservedly, hey, America's great. I think it's quite I mean, yes, if you start thinking about what America was up to in the Middle East at that point in time and today, and if you're listening to this in 20 years in the future, probably then as well, <laughs> you, you could really deconstruct a whole lot. But uh, it's, I mean, the President of the United States in this film is an idiot who yep. gets shoved in his bunker and ignored. Yeah, I mean, when you first see him, he's asking a highly trained Air Force officer to get him some of the ding-dongs? Yeah, ding-dongs. Ding-dongs. Yeah, I... I forgot that they were a thing and later i was confused as to why she was trying to eat a hockey puck but um yeah and john voight even to a certain degree um did he i always get him mixed up with no i'm I'm thinking of simmons i'm thinking of simmons uh the idea that they've had this incredible uh you know they've had megatron locked up for years that a lot of our current technology comes from transformers and it's like you never foresaw this going wrong at any point. You never thought that someone might come looking for him, really. Like, there could be more of them. I, uh, I think it does have quite a, a critical... Sorry, I was say, you're, you're thinking of... Uh, I only know this because I forgot this character existed until I watched... Uh, you're thinking of Banachek. He's the one who gives Thank the... Thank you, uh, yes. I, don't, I only remember him because in a lot of spin-off comics we did after that film, he was treated like a major character. He's in loads okay. of them. And he's, he's never in any of the films again because he's just quite a dull man with a moustache who just walks into the room where John Boyd is and goes, oh yeah, all the aliens. That's it, yeah. And now I'm leaving. Yeah, bye. I've dumped the exposition, which is the word I was thinking of earlier. Uh, I'm off now, bye. <laughs> oh, nice work if you can get it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, like, uh, I like Lennox. I don't know why, because as you say, he's got that character arc but he's just a very sort of vanilla-ish character really he's one of the closest things with traditional action hero in the whole mm. film but there's, there's something appealing about he's just straight down the line 
goodness, I suppose is the word. Uh, but he's yeah, not a soldier wacky... doing his job wants to get home. Yeah. And uh, oh, I mean, I, I had uh, somebody worked I used to work with for whom this trilogy was entirely about him. I hope she was happy he was back in the last one. She'd be very disappointed with the fourth. Yeah. I mean, you can pretty much ignore the robots in Revenge of the Fallen, certainly. Uh, Dark of the Moon a bit. AoE and TLK, debatable. Um, a lot of the exposition just comes out of nowhere. But yeah, I, I think the army boys, they're okay. They're okay. They're good lads when they're, you know, doing their jobs. <laughs> Actually, what, what, because what, uh, you were tweeted about it when you were watching it. Uh, one character, mm. a very minor character, uh, you said how much you liked, which uh, surprised me, uh, was uh, Bobby B, is it? Uh... Oh, Bobby B, yes. Yeah, his scene was, it, it was just so funny. I forgot how funny it was with his nervous laughter, um, you know, and. I had never noticed that Bumblebee followed them into the second-hand thing. I always wonder how Bumblebee knew how to, how to be there, which just goes to show how much I was paying attention to the film the first time, because I never noticed that he actually follows them in and then just goes and parks himself uh, next to the Volkswagen Beetle, which I thought was... That was okay. That was cute. The fact that he, you know, doesn't want to be a Volkswagen Beetle when he could be a Camaro. Um, but yeah, Bobby B's... It, it was just... It was nice. It was just a nice bit of comedy. Uh, it, yeah, I, I thought it was good, especially when you know Bumblebee blows out all of the glass on the lot, and he still asks for four thousand dollars for him. He doesn't even want to get rid of him. Then he's like, "No, you still have to pay me to take this devil car I don't even own away." Yeah, I, um, I don't think I'd ever heard of a Camaro before this film. I think they're very much I uh, hadn't either. No, I, American they thing, aren't they? Yeah, they, they don't do much over here. I've never seen one, apart from when I've gone to a convention and Bumblebee's been parked outside. Wouldn't fit in British parking spaces. Yeah. I, I, think, I think I've seen a few Bumblebee ones over the years now, where for people just owned, people supposed to report it so they can pretend they're sheer yeah. aloof. Get somebody to come sit on their lap because they've only got one seatbelt, which... <laughs> That's not a safe thing to do, kids. I don't think... Uh, no, personally, I would let the other person die. I would say, no, you're not having to share my seatbelt. <laughs> We're practical, damn it. <laughs> That's, well, before we talk about maybe a big breakout character, uh, Sam's parents, what did you think of them? I've always been kind of ambivalent towards them, but in this film, they feel a lot more real than they do in the sequels. In the sequels, they just they descend into being these kind of, you know, really weird comic uh, archetypes um but in this film you know they they reminded me kind of of parents from cartoons in the 90s like dexter's laboratory or um i was gonna say powerpuff girls but no he's he's pretty handled uh parent they, they let you know sam go off and have adventures and they're worried about him but they're not overly intrusive um, and I think they they react in the way that real people would when they're suddenly surrounded by soldiers and what's going on. I particularly like that his dad is such a cheapskate. And that's why Sam ends up with Bumblebee, because he thinks that his first car should be a piece of crap because that's the American experience. And he wants this like perfect house and the perfect garden. Uh, and his wife just is crazy. And they're OK. They they're the best they are in this film, and going forwards, not so much. So if I, I think I'm easily entertained because I, I, I love his parents. <laughs> uh, I like how it's 
because traditionally what it would be is that the dad would be the really wacky one and the mom would be rolling her eyes and be all sensible. So well, I mean, he's you know, not particularly a straight-laced character for dad, but it's a mom who is really crazy, are you masturbating one? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was expecting that scene to make me cringe, and it didn't because, again, they they have a good chemistry with Shia LaBeouf and he with them, and it does feel like, oh god, the awkward parents. He can't tell them what's really wrong, so they're going to jump to the worst possible conclusion, kind of thing. I'm wondering what, what, why they think um, Megan Fox was sat in that box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you've brought a girl home, and you, you're just. Sitting in a chest of drawers. You just, yeah, you, you just. Are you alright, Sam? Are you okay? She needs to talk about this. Son, you've got a car. This is what American teenagers are supposed to use their car for, parked up <laughs> on her. I know it's a piece of crap, but at least it could move, unlike a chest of drawers. <laughs> uh, but uh, that, I think, brings us to the, the big character for this film, was obviously. Well, you, you had never heard of him, but Optimus Prime was quite a... Previously, he'd been sort of a big, notable Transformers character. Uh, maybe Soundwave, after that, is the second best known. Oddly enough, not so much Megatron, I think. Uh, people tended to remember the cassette guy more. They remember Soundwave, and I think they remember Starscream more. I, I would say that, to the general public, remembering it from something they've seen, I would say that they remember Starscream and Soundwave a lot more than they ever would Megatron. Mm, yeah, uh, but with this film, suddenly it was the dawn of a bumblebee. Yes, yeah, it was. Because he is, I love, he is completely and utterly insane after years alone searching for this old spark. Apart from the times he was hanging around with Anthony Hopkins, of course. Of course, Apart yeah, that totally times. happened. But probably would have sent him a bit madder, to be fair. Yeah, he could have had all of his marbles and then spent like five minutes with child Anthony Hopkins and just lost it. <laughs> yeah, Bumblebee is cool. So much of what Bumblebee does of his film, if he was a completely, uh, if he hadn't got all bent gum, mm. a lot of his decisions would not make very much sense. <laughs> but <laughs> no, because like, he is, yeah, I don't think he even likes Sam that much for most of the film. Until really towards the end, he even slightly warms to him because he is uh, quite happy to just have him scare the shit out of him. When he, follow, when he gets followed by him. Well, you know, I love that as well. Like, he knows that Sam is in danger, that the Decepticons have arrived. So the first thing he does is abandon Sam to drive off to go and signal Optimus. Like, you could have just he, taken him with you. I mean, I, I couldn't work out where he... I couldn't remember where he was going at first. Like, he's just off... I mean, okay, so he wanted to go somewhere where nobody would see the bat signal. Yeah. I think people saw that bat signal for miles around anyway. So yeah, and surely he could have just transmitted it from the garden. I don't see why he had to drive off to the middle of a junkyard. Like, I think he just, he wanted, like, but, uh, like, she had a booth to just get accidentally killed. So when Optimus has arrived, he's like, ah, oh, the annoying human kid. Yeah, um, I, I have bad news and good news. Mostly bad news. We, um, we only needed his glasses anyway. <laughs> yeah, we don't actually need him to be alive, so... So, like, the dad probably knows where they are. As you have, because you keep getting, you keep, uh, you said how hard it is to remember what he's actually called, whether it's Spike or Sam or whatever. Or well, whatever, yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, at the time, God, the fandom, because Michaela was not called Carly, the fandom mm-hmm. were up in arms. They were outraged. How could, how could, this would be a much better film, in the eyes of those people, if she was called Carly. 
uh, as was proven by Dark of the Moon, because everybody loved that so much more when we had a girl oh. called Carly in it. But, <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but the only... I mean, I don't understand why they didn't call the hacker girl Carly, because that would have made sense. She was blonde and she was good with computers. And nobody can remember her name anyway. <laughs> Maggie, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, possibly. <laughs> I've got to tell you the actress's name. <laughs> no. But uh, uh, the only reason he's still called Whitwicky is because of a plot point that it needs to be a fairly unique name so we could track him down when uh, when they break this, the Sector 7 code or whatever. Uh, they ha- oh, break the hacking yeah, can code. Can you imagine goes, if his name was John Smith? I mean, jeez. <laughs> oh, I've got to Google that. Who knows what will come up? Uh <laughs> Oh, I, I just love everything Bumblebee does, and his smoothness of his transformation as well, where he sort of, his roof folds over him like it's a cape when he transforms. I, I love all that stuff, and he gets so much personality out of that gimmick, which uh, is, he struggles in the spin-off media because it's really hard to do that he talks through soundbites thing in a comic or uh, a book. Or an extended TV show when he's just got snippets of dialogue in the movie and he's trying to just express himself. Um, I love it when Michaela correctly guesses he's an alien and he does that applause thing and he's really <laughs> enthusiastic. He's like, yay, she got it. She understands me. It's like, oh, Bumblebee, I love you. I love you so much. A, so you, you see why people just went absolutely uh, nuts for him. It's, uh, I, I suppose he's the most featured Transformer as well. So that's, if you're going to be yes. into it, that would be what you would be into. Uh, I think all his comedy works, uh, all the pathos when he's captured and they're spraying him with fire extinguishers, because that's what you do to subdue an alien robot. You just uh, You actually do. No, you do, because in the Ultimate Doom Part 2, Megatron abandons his plan because he gets sprayed with fire retardant foam. So that See, is actually the most a... G1 accurate part of the movie. It's a faithful adaptation. <laughs> See, I... the Easter eggs were there all along, nerds. You just didn't spot them. <laughs> I do. Have, I won't go through all of them. Like so many little moments of this took from the cartoon and the comics mm. uh, that are just sort of peppered throughout. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the big one is a, a big fight in a dam. That's you, know, yep. you can't get more cheap one than that. Yeah, the the genuine transformation noise when Blackout transforms first time. The little Autobot symbol on Bumblebee's steering wheel. Yeah, he just needs an I love... What's it that he puts on his car? I heart NY, I think, in one of the episodes. He has a bumper uh, sticker I, Yeah, yeah I, I love yeah. mindless violence. So we've got to be movie bumper. Yeah. <laughs> I love my face. Optimus Prime, keep out. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, but Bumblebee is a, a huge, huge success. Hmm. Uh, I, I've actually been lying for years about what my first Transformer is, and it was my mum that reminded me about this, because... After we saw the film, they were doing the run-up for Revenge of the Fallen. So I think actually it must have been mid to late 2008. Um, But she went to Sainsbury's. I was off sick with a cold. And she went and she came back with a Revenge of the Fallen Legion Legends class Bumblebee. And gave it to me because she was like, because I loved Bumblebee from the film so much. And because she remembered who Bumblebee was from watching the film. So my first Transformer was actually that. Wow, the toy advert works. (laughs) It did. It worked. Yeah. God, remember, remember, when you could, remember when you could go to a shop and buy Transformers? <laughs> God, how are the primes? Remember when for, for like that first two films, they just did shitloads of toys and characters who weren't even in the films? Because we had so much money for the movies. And you had 
nest and uh, hunt for the Decepticons. And you'd go to Sainsbury's and there'd be a whole toy aisle just full of Transformers. And now you go and there's one one-step changer of Megatron that no one wants. Oh. <sighs> so sad. That's the day. I know, it feels a bit cheap like I am, but never mind. <laughs> wow, if there's a Megatron toy that Becca won't buy, there's something very wrong with the world. Exactly, something has gone horribly wrong somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, I, mean, I like, I mean, the odd thing with the climax that always bugs me is that Mission City, as a name, is so clearly a placeholder name in the script because they didn't know what city they were going to film <laughs> in. It's like they never bothered to change it. And again, very G1-esque, you know? They weren't great at naming things then either. <laughs> Where shall we go on our mission? We will go to Mission City. It's <laughs> the only place. Well, Las Vegas is closer. No, Mission City. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah. At least they didn't call it Carbomb, yeah. At <laughs> least that, they that didn't. That was actually where Scott Brock attacked them at the start. Did he not see the side? Oh, yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I find again listening to the commentary where Bang's talking about their bits in that final battle in Mission City, where when the camera is cutting from actor to actor in the same conversation, yeah. both half of that conversation are filmed in two completely diff- different, up to three completely different places. Yeah. Uh, so they, sh- they shot it in uh, California. I think, I think it was LA. Uh, Detroit was it? Uh, and on the Universal Backlot, so two real streets and a, and a Backlot streets in uh, two different cities. Yeah. And it's all meshy so well. I don't think you tell uh, tell from looking at it, but it's uh, that No, it's edited very well. Yeah. And I, I love, love when Sheila Booth on that rooftop for real. Mm-hmm. There's a, a reading about Margot May, so it's something to see that actors tend to hate him, whilst his crew tend to really love him. Yeah. And for what... Right, well, I guess read it. Uh, he treats everybody on the set exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So he was saying to uh, Pierre Le "Yeah, you're fucking going on that roof, whether you like it or not." Yeah. <laughs> the same way he'll say to a teamster, "Where's that fucking truck that we need yeah. missing?" Or he'll make, shout at Mega Fox if he doesn't think she's doing it well. In the same way, he'll shout at Catherine if they don't believe a bagel. So he's, he's an equal, reasonably equal employer in a way yes. that, that people, the little people if it's fair to call them that, alike. Mm-hmm. And the big main actors don't necessarily. Bruce Willis hates him, apparently. He'll never work with him again. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I love all that stuff. Uh, I, I, I laugh at how clunky one shall stand, one shall fall is. It's almost a... Nuts, oh, God. It's almost like... A, yeah. It's weird, because early in the film, they managed to get freedom is the right of all sentient beings in as a line of dialogue that sounds fairly like a thing you would say. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't, like, one shall stand, one shall fall. What? What? Well, first yeah, we've both, we've both just from? fallen off this roof, so we're both standing up right now. So, you know, <laughs> it's the wrong <laughs> moment to say it right. It's like he had a clipboard of things that Hasbro said had to be in the movie, and he'd gotten right to that, and that was like the last Wait, thing on the list. And he was uh, like, oh, shit. Just get Optimus to say it when they're stood over there. It's fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, but, but, no but, one will notice. I think that would a competition. They had, it was either that or oh, freedom okay. is the right of all sentient beings. They had a, a vote to have one line of dialogue in the film. There were like five options. Uh, <laughs> one shall stand, one shall fall. Ooh, I like cheese. <laughs> truck not monkey 
Uh, this is a dead palace. Those are the options. Uh, they g- completely, genuinely, that that was never going to be in the film. Optimus Prime is quite suicidal at the end. It's oh proper yeah. full on Marvel Comics Prime. It's like, right, here's my plan, guys. Okay, I'm going to go kill myself <laughs> in a way that will leave Megatron alive and all the other Decepticons alive. And there won't be any new, more new Decepticons, but all the other murderous, psychotic killer robots who are already here. They'll still be about, you'll have to sort them out, I will be dead. <laughs> I'd hide, you're in charge, probably. I, I would put Jazz in charge, but, you know, he's often uh, goes to pieces in a crisis. <laughs> yeah, I, I love how Optimus is like, the only way to destroy the cube is I must sacrifice myself. And Charles is like, I just I could just do that, but with Megatron, and then Optimus is like, oh, oh yeah, I I didn't think of that. And then later he's like, ah, oh, that's totally my plan along. <laughs> no, for reals. Yeah, movie Optimus is I love movie Optimus. He gets a lot of stick because he's not. Then again, can I? I, I uh, no, because G one Optimus, right? Get get this. He is just a goofy dad who doesn't know what he's doing in series one and two. He is just making it up as he goes along. And then the 86 film comes along and suddenly he's this Christ-like figure who has no sense of humor and is just like every mentor figure in anything ever. And he gets all like jesus and It's like, no, if you're going to do G1 Prime, make him a dad. Don't make him this jesus analogy really boring character so whenever people say our oh, movie prime's not like g1 prime i'm like yeah i wish he would be more goofy and a dad who plays basketball not how you mean which is just boring i prefer murder prime to boring jesus prime and this is the soapbox that i will die on <laughs> quite happily he's got quite a lot of jesus in him as well he's like uh, murder jesus <laughs> yeah he's, he's jesus who came back wrong you know, when Optimus Fly meets Judas of the Transformers in the next one, he just rips off his face. And I think if Jesus yeah. had done that to the actual Judas, I would have more respect for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, also, at the very end of the film, I mean, it's a beautiful speech for Peter Cullen, and it's sunset, and that's... I mean, I've joked about the sunset thing, but I will one day sit down and work out the differences between the various time zones and how much time is likely to have elapsed over the course of a film. And I think I'll be able to prove that every sunset in this film happens at a point where a sunset would happen. I'm convinced <laughs> of that. That's going to be one of my, my missions in life to do that one day. <laughs> yeah, do it. Win the lottery, live your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all really weird at the end of give a big, passionate speech... Whilst he's standing next to Bumblebee, who has Michaela and Sam making out on his bonnet. And that seems to me inappropriate. (laughs) That is, yeah, that is... Poor Bumblebee has just gone through all of this trauma. And now there are two alien organisms making out on his anatomy. That's got to be uncomfortable. But again, he was trying to encourage that earlier when he faked that breakdown. Maybe Bumblebee's just very kinky. Could very well be. Yeah, he could be just a very inappropriate boy. They got his express consent before doing that. (laughs) Reminds me of um, Robots in Disguise 2015. There's a YouTube short uh, where Denny, who's the human character, he's eating like a hot dog whilst Bumblebee is driving along. And he gets like mustard and ketchup all over Bumblebee's interior. 
And Bumblebee kind of lets him out and goes, okay, bye. And then just goes straight to a car wash. And is like, oh, my God, humans are so gross. And I think Transformers like that live on Earth just must think that all the time. We are so gross as a species. Yeah, I, I think Phil Bumblebee would have, yeah, he'd have been straight. He'd be like, Ratchet, don't shine any UV lights on me. There's no... <laughs> Why yeah. do I want to stay with a boy? I didn't actually say that was just a sound clip from a film that played by accident. I didn't really want to stay with him, Optimus. That's why. That's why my voice isn't working in the next film. It like, wasn't really fixed. Being... Yeah, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, and I also love as well how Optimus. Like, it's a beautiful speech. It's heartwarming, but he's saying, "Hey, this planet that I don't govern or have any power over, you should just come here. All Autobots, come to Earth. We're on Earth. Come live here." The President of the United States and, like, the Prime Minister of England and the Prime Minister of, like, European countries must have tuned in and be like, whoa, wait, hang on, where? Where are you going to live? Where? We didn't invite you. This can only end well. Yeah. Especially as well, he's sending out a signal that basically says, hey, Decepticons, Earth is where we are at. Come attack us. uh, I think the the inference of Edward Fields that they're supposed to have killed all the Decepticons. (laughs) It's weird because it's not really set up that much for a sequel. This one, I mean, obviously, I don't think anybody making this really expected there would be another one afterwards. To be honest, uh, they weren't that optimistic. I don't, they've certainly had like at least three more films than they ever thought they would get, and I would argue four at least. Yeah. Uh, so it does like very firmly say all the Decepticons are dead, and everybody's relaxing. And yeah, and uh, it's cool. Nothing ever is ever going to happen again, so we don't need to worry. <laughs> Let's hope we don't have to suddenly bring Megatron back in the next one as a good yeah, and, and give him a boss for some reason. Still not clear on that. Still not clear. On that. I, don't, I mean, I, 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 we'll have to do a podcast on my film one day, just talking about how I, oh. Fallen is the most Michael Bay character of all time—a Transformer who is always on fire. That's, yeah. that's why he picked and, him to be my film. And I will defend Devastator having a scrotum because I thought it was funny and I don't often get toilet humour. <laughs> so as we sort of on to a, a sort of final wrap-up, uh, is there anything you really, really didn't like about the film this time out of bed? Something that you thought was utterly terrible? <sighs> no. To be honest with you, no. I got to the end and I thought that was a damn good action film. I can now look at it as a Transformers fan and a non-Transformers fan, and I can honestly say that it works for me on both levels. Um, I, I really like... There were a couple of, I suppose... I suppose the hacker storyline, you could just slice it out of the film and you wouldn't really notice any difference. You could still work out what the Decepticons were trying to do from the exposition that Optimus Prime gives Sam and from the explanation at the beginning. So any scenes that they were in kind of dragged a bit they, they felt like they were part of a different film and then once the robots show up they just feel even more superfluous um the music's beautiful the action scenes are beautiful the cinematography like you said is just is stunning even on a small screen and hey it achieved its purpose it had it got a whole load of people interested in something they might never have picked up otherwise and so obviously that's its great, greatest testament the fact that i am here that I have spent God alone. The fact knows that how you were here. Yeah, the fact <laughs> that I'm here. I mean, yeah, I mean me as a fan, not me. I'm important because we are all but dust in the wind. 
it was there to make money and to generate new fans and revitalize a franchise that was basically dead on its feet at this point. And it works on all levels for me. Um, how about you? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, with a hacker subplot at the end, where they kept cutting back to them fighting Frenzy, every time we cut back, I was thinking, what are they doing again? What are they trying to do here? <laughs> oh, yeah, they're trying to call in the Air Force, just in case nobody notices giant robots wrecking a city. <laughs> they won't which, do anything. Which they know. don't need to do, because once, uh, oh, what's Lennox's mates called? Uh, have you ever soldier? Uh, Epps. Epps, sorry, I should have known. Once Epps grabs those short-range radios, they're just talking to the, the local army anyway, calling in help. So they, poor old Glenn and Maggie and uh, John Voight, uh, yeah. as his character was called, I believe. Uh, they, they didn't need to really do anything, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, uh, they, they were completely superfluous. I, the actress playing Maggie is perfectly fine in the film, and Glenn's fairly funny. Then again, he's a sort of a, another funny black guy, which I get why people are annoyed that all the black guys in these films are funny black guys. Uh, apart yeah. from Epps, actually, he's just uh, cool. Yeah, that's sort of uh, the main weak area. It's interesting, actually, she was the one who mouthed off about the film afterwards as well and said how much she regretted doing it, which is what, well, presumably why she never came back, unlike never, yeah. anybody else. Well, uh, she, yeah. she missed out on her chance to be last night. I'm sure she'll be ruined. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be devastated. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, so much of it works. I mean, uh, as you said, you know, Transformers, they had that mini renaissance that you completely missed in the early 2000s with uh, original robots in disguise and early Armada, but that had pretty much petered out by this time. You'd have the, su- and the original success of the Dreamwave comics had died. I mean, the the RDW stuff uh, was... People say, uh, we were saying recently about losing readers. But around this point in time, RDW were losing more readers uh, mm. than I think at any other point in the Transformers comics, uh, modern Transformers comics era. Certainly more than Dreamwave ever lost. And yeah. to be honest, I would say this film, I think there'd been like a year and a half of IDW at this point. I think their first issue was right at the end of 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say this film is better than just about everything IDW had done up to that point. Maybe accepting Spotlight Cup. I've I've been reading the early IDW just to kind of just see, because a lot of people talk about how bad All Hail Megatron is, and I've never actually sat and read it. And yeah, this film did a much better job than this. I'm really sorry. (laughs) The sort of, but I find the difference is that in early IDW, there's a lot of men in black who were playing completely seriously but utterly incompetent. Yes. But the brilliance of what Simmons in Sector 7 is that he's just incompetent and funny, and you're not meant to take him seriously because they realise that's the only way you could possibly do a character like that because nobody takes many yeah. blacks seriously anymore. But while bless him in IDW, it was, oh, look, here's Agent Red, and he's a mystery man, and what's he up to? And he keeps <laughs> no losing Transformers, but somehow still has a position of authority. <laughs> Uh, that's just one of the yeah. differences. I mean, this is a much more the early RDW stuff is trying very hard to be contemporary. Some of it's perfectly good, some of it's very good, but it's very it's too serious. Yeah, it, it it's it's almost got to stick up its ass. It's trying to play it far too seriously. This is a lot more fun. I mean, it's sort of general film terms as well. I mean, again, around that, as I sort of said at the start, around that time, there. We're a year before Iron Man, which, of course, I've, uh, this sets a lot of style for Marvel films, as I said before, as well. Uh, yeah. Just because the, the effects were there, really. I mean, this was the first film to have that opportunity to do so much of this 
type of stuff. Uh, but you know, no Iron Man yet. Uh, no Star Wars. No Star Trek. Well, uh, I, I wanted think... to do a. No, sorry. Uh, uh, I'd say, um, I think the two sort of two big films of, around this time were Batman Begins, which yep. was only a moderate success. It, uh, as if you ever meet a Superman Returns fan, <laughs> a run. But B, they will always tell you how Superman Returns made more money at the box office than Batman Begins. <laughs> they, will, they will say that as if that, yeah, that's ours films better because we made more money. Yeah. Uh, and Casino Royale, but that's not really a good family. It's a very good film. It's a very successful film, but it's not really a fun family film. No. So you take the kids is, to see. Uh, yeah. Well, it's funny, so, I did... I... No, no, sorry. Yeah. I, I wanted to... Um... Because I always say when uh, discussions about the movie franchise and the future of it and what it should be come up, especially on certain forums, um, 100% of the people who hated it will always say Transformers should have no human characters. It should be a CGI only thing where the Transformers are the only things you see on screen um, because that will appeal to more people. That's always the argument. I've always railed against that argument because as I've said in this podcast, it is the general public making your money. So I wanted to make the point again, but I thought I can't just come on the show and say, this is my opinion, and it's correct, because opinions are subjective. Um, and I wanted to do a bit of research. So I went away and I researched um, a film that was all CGI um, with a pre-existing franchise label uh, attached to it, and that was the Clone Wars movie for Star Wars, which came out in 2008, oh, yeah. so one film later. So this is everything that Transformers fans say, or a certain sect of Transformers fans say the film should be. It is an all-CGI film with pre-existing lore, focusing solely on the characters of the lore, and it made $68 million at the box office. Transformers, which came out in 2007, a year before, took $709 million at the box office. And at the end of the day, movies are a business. And that money didn't come from hardcore fans. It came from the general public who came to see actors they knew of and liked in a big action movie. And you can argue that, like, oh, well, Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks movies always perform well, but they don't have this pre-existing brand attached to them. Uh, parents in the general public will look at something like Moana and see an original story they'd like to see. But something stuck to it, like Transformers, would just translate in their minds as toy commercial you kind of have to trick them and say no 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 this is a Shia LaBeouf movie there's also robots in it but you know mostly human characters um if someone like Phil Maud uh, Phil Maud Phil Lord and Chris Miller the people behind the Lego movie could get their hands on it then hell yeah I think they could do something special but the Transformers films as they exist now always have to have human characters in it and we really just need to get to grips with this (laughs) Because the Bumblebee movie is going to have a human character. The reboot movies will have a human character. It's just the way the franchise has to work. And it's also a matter of budget. You know, you kind of have to budget for having CGI characters on screen a lot of the time. Which, yeah, it's expensive even now when CGI is so prevalent. So, yeah, I just wanted to to say that because it always annoys me. Uh, I... Ages ago, when I had a YouTube channel, like literally about seven, eight years ago, I did a thing where I was like, oh, if you could make a Transformers movie, what would you make? And so many of the answers were were these long, complicated, oh, well, I want to tell the lore story of the Unicorn trilogy, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, but you need the general public to come and see this or your film's not going to make any money. (laughs) 
people say, I mean, I love the uh, more the BTI last slide comic. And you have some people going, oh, this should be what the film should be. This should be what the film should be. I was like, well, it's a sitcom, really. It's, yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's a great, light-hearted romp, but you couldn't do... I mean, you could take some of the plots and do quite big films out of them, but you would have to change it so much it wouldn't really resemble the aesthetic of more than meets at all, which is perfectly suited to a comic story. And there's so much a you'd have to comic. explain. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to basically have a Star Wars title call for about 20 minutes to explain all of the history of the transfer of his race and why they're doing this and who the characters are and blah, blah, blah. And it just wouldn't work. And that's why I love this film so much, because they do give you some lore. They give you the Allspark. They give you the Cybertronian look, the war. They give you the good guys and the bad guys. But then they just let the film play out as a film, not as a bloody Wikipedia article. If I, as you had your uh, stock rants, I would like to, to do my stock rants about oh, something yes. in particular. Rant uh, that has always bugged me. And, you know, as sort of touch on, the IDW comics didn't start that long before, the, only sort of 18 months before the film came out. They're going to be wrapping up about the same time Bumblebee comes out. So they've sort of, films of the comics in their current forms have sort of run alongside each other. And I think when people look back, they will be seen as sort of part of the same era of Transformers. Uh, maybe along with the Aligned stuff as well, if that ends up wrapping up pretty soon as well. I don't know what the plans are for the future of that. It was sort of like this sort of one big, whatever we're calling this decade, the teenies or whatever, uh, Yeah, run I think they're moving on to the Evergreen. I think that's what's going to take over from the Aligned. And the thing that always bugs me about the comics in relation to the films is where anyone, whenever anyone, anyone, blog or newspaper or a YouTube channel, whatever. Whenever anybody says something to try and get people to read the comics, uh, usually more than meets the eyes, that's the one that people really are passionate about. Every single thing piece on it saying read this comic will start with, hey, you know how shit the Transformers films are? Well, read this comic instead. And so I, I was like, well, why you s- start with a negative if you're trying to get somebody to read it anyway? Hey, you know how shit this other thing is? And B, it's kind of insulted to assume that the people who like the films... And there are a lot of people who like the films. You don't get four incredibly successful movies. They don't where people keep coming back to unless mm. they're enjoying it. It took to the fifth one before, before it went off the white rails. So there's a long period of people who still enjoy these films uh, a lot. You're not going to... Why is you they wouldn't want to read the comic as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I enjoy both. I think they're... I would say more of ETI and particularly this early base stuff, are two key changeative things for Transformers over, over the last decade. But obviously the film more so because it's reached more people. Uh, so more than the I still done a lot uh, of new novel stuff as well. But they, mm. they shouldn't be in competition with one another. No, they, they shouldn't. They're, they're doing different things, aiming different audiences. And you, you don't need to slag off. One. I mean, uh, now I look like a hypocrite because I was slagging off the comic, earlier comics in relation to the films <laughs> earlier. Damn, I'm a, oh, I'm just <laughs> I just I know that there's a lot of push sometimes in the Transformers fandom to compartmentalize people to say, "Oh, well, you're a fan of the comics, therefore you're not really a fan because you don't like the TV shows." And then there's a lot of, well, you like the TV shows, so you like the stupid things, so you're not a serious fan because you don't like the comics, and then. The Bayformers fans, they're just like, well, you, you're you a casual fan. You don't really count if you just like the films. And it's like, no, 
most Transformers fans are a Venn diagram, but even so, even if you only enjoy one portion of Transformers, even if you only enjoy one continuity, Transformers animated, that's it, you're still a Transformers fan, and there's no reason to look down on people. Because at the end of the day, for a franchise to survive, it has to adapt and change. It has to be something different and something new. And that's all that's happened here. We've got a new influx of fans because their fiction has appealed to them and it's brought them on board. And it's okay and it's valid and it doesn't matter where you came from. So many of the people who were seen the comics were announced to be ended were going, ah, this proves... All that gay stuff, that was never really mm-hmm. popular. I would say people who went the films went out to be doing whatever it's doing after Bumblebee. Nobody, nobody's even quite sure if Bumblebee's coming out in cinemas. It's all very, very confused at the moment. Yeah, we, we've still not even seen a trailer yet, which I'm surprised yeah. at. <laughs> Almost so people going, ah, oh, but this proves the Bay films are never really popular either. Because, as well, but, 10, yeah, they were years. <laughs> they've got, that's a good long run they both had. They're, they're not in... They're very, I think they're both actually much more similar in taking things in new directions that certain fans didn't like. And yes. I want to see Michael Bay and James Roberts team up, walk down the streets hand in hand, unifying the two <laughs> disparate branches of the Transformers fandom. More than meets the eye live action with Megan Fox as Tailgate. I would watch it. <laughs> But if I go to this thing in uh, July that she's at, I'll pitch that to her. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, please do. <laughs> uh, I don't think she's done a film for a while. She might need a new agent. I'll help her out with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, and on that note. <laughs> on that note. On that really weird note. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> so, says the woman who's married to a car. But, yeah. But shut up. <laughs> Oh dear. And on that entirely normal note, uh, Becca, is there anything uh, you would like to throw people at that you're doing at the moment? Not much, to be honest. Um, there is a new podcast that uh, I am taking part in. It is hosted by the lovely Matty Franklin from Twitter. Um, and it has uh, myself and Umar, Speed Freak 01, as uh, guests on the first episode. And I believe... From episode two that Erica will be joining us, uh, Trans Sound Wave. And it's called the Knackered Robots Podcast. And we basically just talk general Transformers, uh, whatever takes our fancy that week. Um, You can find the first episode on Podbean. And we basically just talk about how cool Transformers is for like an hour. It's great. It's great because we just we have no idea what we're doing. But we we try to sound professional. Damn it. (laughs) Um, and apart from that, you can always find me on Twitter at Tane Kirihi. I mean, imagine doing a Transformers podcast where you just talk for ages without really knowing what you're doing. But I can't picture that. It's a strange it's completely image. unbelievable. <laughs> and I am, of course, at Inflatable Dalek on Twitter. You can uh, find uh, Transformation, my blog, looking at every issue of the uh, Brit- original British Transformers comic in order, and which will be going on to the uh, the film comics by the end of mm-hmm. this year, because I'm coming up to the end of Marvel, so I've just got to get through the Armada British comic, and then into the British Bay comics, which have lots of Banachek in them. If you're a Banachek fan, he's all over those issues. 
Uh, and I, uh, my newest short story is out in the current issue of Mad Scientist Journal, my third professional sale. I have now sold one more professional story than Harper Lee. Awesome. C- Come kill this mockingbird, Harper. Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> I'll tell you what makes you better than her in any way, except literally. <laughs> And in the show notes, I will put Tom and Marion's uh, details in as well, because you, sh- you should check them out, my other podcasting peeps. And uh, on that note, I'm going to go enjoy the sun. Sunset is literally just happening as we are finishing this recording on this uh, barmy summer evening. We have timed that perfectly. It is. We are so on trend. It's great. So I'm going to go sit on a Camaro reef and see what happens. <laughs> And I am going to go and stand on top of a building and gaze wistfully to the horizon as I remember that I have no food in the flat to eat, so I have to go out. Damn it. Said Becca food, everyone. <laughs> That's all you can do for her. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Good-